Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from 1 John 3 and uh, verses 10 to 24. 1 John 3 verses 10 to 24. Let us come before God and especially the Holy Spirit to ask for illumination that he gives upon the word. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you caused this word to be written. We cry this afternoon, you'd break forth and give us light and understanding. I pray that you help us not just to be hearers, but doers also. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Hear the word of God. 1 John 3 and verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. May God bless to us the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Amen. The point of the passage is given to us in verse 10. And John is telling us again what a true believer looks like. And he is enabling us to distinguish the one from whom he calls the child of God from the one he calls the child of the devil. And for John, he's quite clear, not everyone is going to heaven. So he divines he divines mankind, he divines humanity into two groups, the children of God and the children of the devil. This one, the children of God, practices righteousness, the other does not. And he wants us to see something of the specific nature of practicing righteousness. And he tells us that the child of God loves his brothers. And it is a test. Now, as it happens, John has spoken of this already. On two occasions before, John says to 
this congregation in Ephesus as he writes this first letter. This is something that you have heard from the beginning. Now he may have been alluding to the fact that from the first time they heard John preach, or maybe from the time that they were converted, from that beginning they have heard this message, you are to love one another. John was known as the Apostle of Love. We've looked at that a little bit already in our study. And if you remember, in his old age, right before he died, the Lord took him, when he couldn't walk anymore. He was carried into, into church on a chair. And he, and he could only just say these words, love one another. He was known as the Apostle of Love. But maybe John has something else in mind. Because he's going on to refer to Cain and the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So maybe by the reference in the beginning, he's referring to the beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture. This is the message. But the point is this is not something new. It is not just the message that Jesus brought. It is not just the message that the apostles preached. It is the message of the whole scriptures that we're to love the brethren and the very fact that you've heard this before many times before as John is reminding his audience that they have heard it before brings with it the temptation that familiarity breeds contempt we've heard this message before John says so pay attention to it it is an important message it could not be more important so first of all, let's look at the test of love. And for John, it is a matter of life and death. It is not a trivial thing. It is not a peripheral thing. It's not an optional thing. It is a matter of life and death. He says in verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. If you do not love the brethren, if you do not love the things God does, if you do not move in the sphere of love, then you move in a sphere of death, John says. And he goes on in verse 15 to be even more specific. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now note a couple of things with me. In verse 14, he talks about not loving. And in verse 15, he talks about hating. Because for John, not loving means hating. There is no middle ground. There's no grey area. We, we live in a... In a, in a day where people love the grey area. But for John, it is either one or the other. There's no middle ground. You either love or you hate. It's loving and hating. And note that not to love someone for John is to be a murderer. But John had heard Jesus say that in the Sermon on the Mount. If you refer to your brother and call him Raka, which is a fool, Jesus said, you have committed murder in your mind, in your thoughts. And then John moves from loving the brethren in the first part of verse 14 to a much more general sense of love in the second part of verse 14. John says, this is characteristic of a child of God. It is not characteristic of the child of the devil. The child of God loves, loves God, loves the things of God, loves the people of God. It is a litmus test. It is an issue of life and death. You're either on one side or the other. I was preaching two weeks ago from John 18, 
and that picture, you know, that, you know that, that image of when Judas and the soldiers fell to the ground. Jesus always divides. He came to divide. The cross of Christ is the dividing line. You're either on one side or the other. There is no middle ground. John is not a universalist. He does not believe that everyone is going to heaven. But he's the apostle of love. So there, there are the children of God and there are the children of the devil and this is the test. The second, the second place, look at the illustration of love. That's the test of love. But let us look at the illustration of love because John draws a really illuminating and contrasting illustration because on the one side there's Cain and he says very clearly we should not be like Cain and he has no problems at all with drawing a moral ethical imperative from a from a biograph biographical account of the Old Testament John has no problems with that at all some theologians have problems with that but John doesn't have any problems with that is take a note of this, man. Take a note of it. Mark some of the qualities and characteristics of this man and do not be like that. And Cain was a murderer. It is very humbling and astonishing. But before we get too high, you know, before we get too high and mighty ourselves in how clever we are, the first person born into the world was a murderer. And how much more graphic could a per by the Bible be in the description of the pervasiveness of sin as a consequence of the fall than the, the description of Cain, the fruit of Eve's womb as a murderer. It's, it's, so, it's so difficult. We were talking about it the other night and it is so difficult because I think we were saying that in the 19... I remember growing up when Billy Graham came to West Ham. I was, in, I, I was born in London. And I remember all the sides of the buses, they, they all had life in spelt in different ways. But the point being is that people could walk around and talk about sin then. People could walk around and say that you're a sinner and you need a saviour. But there would be no recognition of that today. There would be no recognition of that we are a sinner and we need a saviour. Because the message taught all the time is that we are inherently good is that we're born good and that anything that's bad that's happened to me is someone else's fault. You know, it is my, you know, it's the way I've brought up, it's my parents or it's the teachers at the school, it's somebody else's fault. But, but, but there is forgiveness, but we have to recognise that we're a sinner and we need a saviour. Now the Bible doesn't tell us why, why Abel's offering was acceptable to God, and while why Cain's offering was not, was it because Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain offered from the fruit of the ground? And it may be that Abel understood the way of salvation, the way of forgiveness, that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Maybe Abel understood the way of faith in the gospel and Cain did not. Or it may be that Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel offered his offering by faith and by implication Cain did not maybe it was that faithless offering but either way Cain killed his brother and the word that John implies here is a very graphic word 
Literally, in the original, it means, it says he cut his throat. You could translate it as slaughtered or butchered. So Cain reveals himself as a child of the devil. Jesus said that, didn't he? That the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And why did Cain kill his brother? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did Cain kill his brother? Not because Abel was evil, but because Abel was righteous. So it wasn't because Abel did something wrong. It was because Abel did something right. It was out of jealousy. It was out of envy that Cain killed Abel. Jealousy gave way to hatred, and hatred gave way to murder. And if you think about it just for a moment, faith is always a response to God's word. Our response to God's word of promise and command. God, we must assume, had revealed his word to both these brothers, whether through their father or, 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 or however. And Abel responded in faith. He responded to God's word in obedience to his command and he trusted his promises. And Cain did not. And if there's one thing, if there's one thing, and we see it, don't we? You know, it's not healthy to spend more than a microsecond on social media, but it's not. But if you do, just for a minute, you see the one thing that unrighteousness, unrighteousness cannot stand, it is righteousness. The one thing that unrighteousness cannot stand is righteousness. R.C. Sproul said, there is one thing that, un that unholy people do not want. It is holy people hanging around. The one thing unholy people do not want is holy people hanging around. So when you hang out with a holy man or a holy sister, either they will spur you on to become like them in holiness, or they will engender in, in your spirit the spirit of jealousy. I think there's, there's two responses. It encourages you and spurs you and moves you on. Or it, or it brings out this response of jealousy. So much so that some can come to hate or dislike the holy person. For the very fact that they are seeking to be right before God. The spirit of hatred can give way to murder. As, sought, as people seek to vanquish them, banish them. Whether physically or metaphorically. We're not to be like Cain. Well, we don't think of ourselves like that, do we? We, don't, we do not put ourselves in the same category as men and women who are in prison and there because they're murdered. We do not do that. But the Bible is saying it, and Jesus is saying it, that if we hate our brother, we've committed murder. And John says, do not be like Cain, but be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Now, John is now going to draw a moral, ethical implication from Christ's death. Now, John is not saying that that is all the death of Jesus was, you know, like a, a moral example. He has told us several times already, and will go on to tell us several more times, that the purpose of the death of Jesus was to provide a sacrifice for our sins. He spoke about propitiation, to propitiate the wrath of God. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But that is the purpose. But there is a sense that the death of Jesus is an example to us. 
and a moral imperative to us. It involved the greatest possible sacrifice. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and was found in fashion as a man in the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Let this mind be in you, Paul says, which is that we should be self-denials. We, we, we should be self-deniers. We should deny self for the sake of others. We shouldn't always stand for our own rights and privileges. Because Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So John says to us in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There is an oughtness to it. There's an imperative to it. It is a commandment. It is what the children of God look like. Do not be like Cain, be like Jesus. So there's that test of love. There's this illustration of love. Do not be like Cain, be like Jesus. And then there's the assurance of love. And in a sense, this is where John wants us to see his emphasis. And it's by doing this, by working these works of righteousness, we demonstrate, we evidence that we're the children of God. Now sometimes, you know, because we're saved by grace, Christians, we preach by grace alone, we run away from the even talking like this in case people misunderstand us. But it's there. It's absolutely there. These things evidence. They don't save us, but they evidence our salvation. And we shouldn't be afraid of teaching it. John is not saying this is how we become children of God. We're not saved by our efforts. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by loving the brethren. We are saved by faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone, nothing in my hands I bring. There's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But the evidence, the evidence that we have faith, genuine saving faith, is that we love the brethren. So that by loving the brethren, we assure ourselves that we belong to the kingdom of light and not the kingdom of darkness. And there's a couple of things I want us to see in verse 20 John says that there's a scenario there is this possibility our hearts may condemn us we are children of God we have faith in Christ our sins are forgiven gloriously forgiven we're on our way to glory and our hearts condemn us we're under conviction of sin for whenever our heart condemns us God is greater than our heart and he knows everything now, it'd be interesting to read out the list of commentators who've come down on two different interpretations of what John is saying. It's a long list. One list of commentators say that John is giving a word of comfort. You know, you, here's the scenario. You find yourself wanting to love the brethren, but you fail. You read the Bible. You listen to a sermon. You listen to one of your brothers or sisters and your heart condemns you. And what do you do? John says, look to God. And God is greater than your sins. God has forgiven you in the name of Jesus Christ. Look to him, look to the cross of Jesus, and your heart will be comforted. There's another bunch of commentators who say almost the opposite. You think your heart condemns you, you haven't seen the half of it because God knows everything. 
And actually there are sins that you have committed that you don't even know about. You think your heart is evil? You think your heart has a propensity to walk in the ways of darkness? You feel condemned? You don't know the half of it. You don't know how wicked your heart is capable of being, but God does. I know you would prefer the first interpretation and I did when saying it, but it is possible that John is saying the second, because Luther is on one side and Calvin the other, just FYI. But um, loving someone versus liking someone. And I want to be practical here. I want us, first of all, in trying to ascertain what John means when he says that we're to love the brethren, we're to love the people of God, and that is a test. I want us to distinguish between loving someone and liking someone. Because it's all the difference in the world. Because, you know, breaking news, not every child of God is equally likable. In fact, I'll go as far to say is that there are some children of God we don't like. And there are some people who may be saved. They believe in Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sins. They're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. They're our brothers and sisters. They're the children of God. They're on their way to glory. They're going to be in heaven. But we don't like them. Their personality rubs us up the wrong, the wrong way. There is something about them that doesn't draw us to them. Sometimes you might even be repelled by them. Now, I know that sounds difficult and awkward, and it ought not to be in the kingdom of God, and there ought not to be a description of Jesus Christ. But we know it to be true, if we're honest. There are some children of God that we do not like very much, and put it the other way around, they don't like me very much. And there may be all kinds of reasons for that. It may be they're not terribly sanctified. They're saved, they're trusting in the blood of Jesus, but their sins are still apparent. It may be that you are not sanctified enough. But whatever it is, whatever it is, there are people in the kingdom you may not like, but you must love them. You must love them. You are to love them. You are to love them as Jesus loved the church and gave his life on their behalf. It is easy to love people you like. That's my point. It's really easy. Let us face it. It's easy to love people you like. It doesn't cost you anything to love people you like. Oh, that we liked everybody. But the test is, when you love somebody that you actually do not naturally like, or you love someone who doesn't naturally like you, and the temptation is, you begin to think thoughts that are divisive and evil. And then those thoughts can turn into hateful thoughts and jealous thoughts and spiteful thoughts. It is not only true that there are some people we like more than others, it is true that there are some people we like a great deal. And it is really true that within our societies and our communities, even as the children of God, we have personal special friends. Jesus had personal friends. He had 12 disciples, but do you know anything about Thaddeus? Do we know anything about Judas Iscariot before? We know a great deal about Peter. We know a great deal about John. John, who writes his epistle, he calls himself, and only a man under inspiration could call himself the one whom Jesus loved and get away with it. 
So John was a close personal friend of Jesus. I put it like this, that there is a sense in the incarnate life of Jesus as he identifies in his human nature with our humanity. He had friends. It's possible to say that. So this commandment to love does not preclude the fact that there are some who are close friends. Let me say a third thing, because John is saying this, that it is all too possible to study what John is saying here about loving the brethren, follow the logic of his argument. It takes some doing to follow John's logic in this epistle. And it's beyond me sometimes to follow his logic and train of thought. But to read this and study it and come away saying, isn't it wonderful? Is it not wonderful to hear what John is saying? It is a glorious thing. But it's all just in my head. It's just in my mind. And John is saying, the real test is what you do with this. Because it's possible to sit this afternoon in church and to hear what John is saying about loving the brethren and to be convinced about it and to say amen and nod to your head. But John is saying, here is a test. Verse 17, here is a test. You have all the world's goods. This is us. This this is all of us now. You have the world's goods, but you see your brother in need and you close your heart toward him. Well, how does the love of God dwell in you? So loving everybody becomes an excuse for loving the people we want to love. I find that a real challenge. Think about Luke 10. We read about it all the time, don't we? And we and we murmur ascension every time. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think it's the best illustration of 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions, what makes it culpable? It's first of all, we, need, we get to see the brother in need. And having seen and been in the material position to respond to that need, we have no pity on him. Here we have it. The disciples were always concerned. Who is our neighbour? Who is our neighbour? Who is our neighbour? And Jesus told this story about the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There's nothing that tells us that this man was a paramedic. We don't think he was a natural dealing with people with predicaments like this all the time. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one to who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Verse 18 of our reading this afternoon. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us be like the Good Samaritan. Let us love with actions. Love is an activity that emerges from sincerity of heart. So it's practical. It's not only here that we sit here and we say amen to academic thoughts of what love is. Love is actually when the rubber hits the road. John Stott says in his wonderful commentary, if you want a commentary on one John, I got Stott's more recently, someone recommended to it, and I've really enjoyed it. 
He says, hatred characterises the world. This is wonderful, by the way. Hatred characterises the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterises the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. Isn't that good? Hatred characterises the world, whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. But love characterises the church, whose prototype is Jesus Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. I wonder if God, in his providence, we talked about his providence this morning, has made a need known to you. So when all the talk, when the sermon is done, and the worship services are over, here is the test. What will you do with that need? Will you push it to the back of your mind? Or is there a response that needs to happen that declares you to be a child of God? May God help us as we see the application of this text in our lives. So that we, it's, it's, it's assure, we speak to our hearts, we assure ourselves that we truly are the children of God. May God bless the word for his glory. Amen.